to turn in them to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. You'll find Psalm 119 on page 512 in the Bibles that are provided for you in the backs of the chairs. If one of those would serve you, please feel free to to use it this morning and then even take it with you if that would serve you. Psalm 119. Before we begin... I wanted to also mention this morning that we have a brother who has been gathering with us for several months now, and because of some of his future plans, perhaps some of you haven't been able to meet him uh, and get to know him quite as much as you would like, but a brother who sits up front here named Trent is heading uh, tomorrow for Thessalonica. Is that, how, is, is that how you're supposed to say it? Are you supposed to say Thessaloniki? Okay, all right, well, we'll just say Thessalonica, because that's the way I heard it growing up. He is leaving tomorrow, and so if you have not got a chance to meet Trent, please grab him before he leaves. Don't let him get out fast, unless, of course, he has plans he needs to get to, but uh, make sure you grab him, get to know him, hear hear briefly, perhaps, what he's heading to do, but the basic gist of it is he is heading to do some ministry-related activity and further training, so be in prayer for our brother Trent. Okay, so I want to start with this question. Have any of you heard any good songs lately? You don't have to demonstrate if you have. I personally enjoy showing my kids songs that I may have listened to when I was younger. My parents like to do the same with me, and we like to say to each other, my dad and I, back and forth, if we show each other a song, now this is music. We may all enjoy when someone shares a song with us that they've enjoyed, and uh, we may enjoy sharing songs with other people too. Well, Psalm 119, like all its partners in the book of Psalms, is a song. It is a poetic song. The author of Psalm 119 is unknown. We can only speculate uh, where the, the... situation behind what it was and the person who was writing it. It is the largest chapter in all of Scripture, as you perhaps already know. One of the benefits uh, that we miss out on in reading the Psalms with our modern 21st century sensibilities is that it is a Hebrew acrostic poem of 22 stanzas that follow the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That's why you see right above verse 1, Aleph. That's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You probably have markings like I do to that effect. All these little headings throughout the 22 stanzas of Psalm 119, Aleph and Beth and Gimel and Daleth and so forth. Within each stanza of its original, in its original Hebrew form, each verse begins with its corresponding Hebrew letter that goes with that stanza. And so you've probably got those markings of the heading But you won't see each verse start with a corresponding English letter because it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in the translation, and the Hebrew alphabet isn't quite the same as the English alphabet. And so we are left out of the enjoyment of this aspect of the poetry if we don't know Hebrew. So a good reason, perhaps, to take a little bit of Hebrew and get a a better sense of that. But also in this psalm, and what it's most known for, perhaps, is that it's got multiple synonymous terms 
that are used to refer to God's Word. Now, you might think of each of these terms, which we'll see in just a moment, as being closely related or even strictly related to what we would call the Bible. And there's certainly a sense to which that is true. But most specifically, each one of these words has to do with God's Word, which is more specific than just the Bible, a copy of the Scriptures that you hold in your hands. The way I've sought to give you a very brief definition of God's Word is this. What God has revealed about Himself. What God has said. What He has revealed about Himself. And you could even say particularly to His people, but it is certainly revealed to the whole world as it is written down for us. And that's certainly what the Bible is. It's God's Word. But the psalmist was not simply thinking of what we think of as the Bible when he was writing Psalm 119. In fact, the psalmist didn't have a Bible like we do that he carried around in his hands or in his bag or in his pocket. And so these words are synonymous, but they have a little bit of a different nuance to each of them. And I want to give you just a quick rundown of what we're looking at here. The, the first word that we're seeing here as we talk about God's word is the word word. It's one of two Hebrew words that are translated in Psalm 119, word. One of them simply refers to what God has said. The other can be translated with a sense of promise. The point is that when you see this word, word, it is that God has spoken and that everything that he has said is his word, what's real, what's true, and you can count on it. The second word you'll see translated in Psalm 119 is the word law. It's a word that you may think simply means commandments, as in the ten commandments, but this could actually also be translated simply word, but the nuance behind that Hebrew word is one of authority. And so it's what God has said, and it is authoritative. The third word is the word translated for us, judgments. You may have a copy or a version of the scriptures that uses the word ordinances. In other words, it's what God has said about his evaluation of things. The next word is testimony. In other words, it's whatever God says as a witness to what is right, what is true, what is real. It could be God's witness or testimony about what is good. It could be his witness about or testimony about something that's bad could be a testimony about himself. It could be a testimony about his creation and so on. The next is precepts, the sixth word here. In other words, essentially it's talking about specific instructions regarding specific situations. It has to do with the details. Seventh is the word statutes, and it has to do with what has been written down about what God has said, about what he has revealed about himself. And then lastly, the word commandments. These are edicts that have been handed down from God. It is what he has said that must be obeyed. 
And each of these eight words are also used roughly 22 times each, just like there are 22 stanzas. So clearly there is intention and uh, force behind the use and meaning of each of these words. The psalmist intends for what God has said, God's word, to be central to the meaning of this psalm. However, maybe the most important contextual item that we need to understand when reading and studying and understanding this passage is the fact that it is not merely, it's not not this, but it's not merely a psalm about the Bible. Certainly, the Bible and its nature and our attitudes towards it are central to its meaning and to our understanding of it. But if I was to ask you what you thought the most repeated words in Psalm 119 are, you might answer that it's these synonymous terms stacking up multiple times throughout the text of this passage. But that would be kind of a a trick question because the answer is that the most used words in this passage are first and second person singular pronouns. I and me and you. More often than words about God's word are the recurring back and forth between I and you or my and your. And so what we have here isn't simply or merely an excursus on the doctrine of Scripture or the many nuances of ways that we understand how God has revealed Himself, though that is certainly significant and vital for us to see here. But rather, at the core of what we are seeing here is a prayer. A prayer from the psalmist to God about the psalmist's need for God's revelation of Himself to be the message that he listens to and lives by. That's what Psalm 119 is all about. That's the context in which we need to read all of its verses about the Word. That this is a prayer from the psalmist to God about the psalmist's need for God's revelation of himself to be the message that the psalmist listens to and lives by. By God's grace, that's what we will see in the rest of our time this morning. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher of the 19th century, said many superficial readers have imagined that it, talking about Psalm 119, harps upon one string and abounds in pious repetitions and redundancies. But those who have studied this divine hymn and carefully noted each line of it are amazed at the variety and profundity of the thought. The more one studies it, the fresher it becomes. It contains no idle word. The grapes of this cluster are almost to bursting full with new wine of the kingdom. Spurgeon liked this psalm. So did Augustine, the church father in the 4th century. But Augustine had a hard time with Psalm 119. He was writing a commentary on the psalms, but he skipped 119 put it off till the very end, was telling everybody he was going to do it at the end, and then when he got to the end, he kind of froze and said, I can't do this. He was eventually convinced to do it, but it was intimidating for him. Alistair Begg, a more uh, contemporary preacher and uh, pastor and author in our time, said that 
he tried to preach Psalm 119 in a series of Wednesday night services at the church that he pastored when he was about 25 years old and declared that he would be working through it over many weeks. And he got through two weeks of it and abandoned ship. And he says nobody really noticed. Nobody asked him about why he stopped preaching through it, which he says, humorously in a self-deprecating way, maybe was an attestment to the fact that they weren't disappointed that he was stopping. (laughs) So Psalm 119 is very large and can be very intimidating. And to do it full justice, I'm going to be honest with you, we would need a miniseries to kind of go through it. But that's not what we're going to do today. That's not what we're going to do this summer. We're going to do kind of an overview I won't be reading every single word of this psalm before we jump in. And I know John's really disappointed about that. He was hoping we would read the whole text in the King James Version and then go through every stanza one at a time and read those words as we go. But that's not what I'm going to do this morning. We always seek to do this as we preach God's Word here, but in a sort of unique way, I'm going to just let this psalm sort of speak for itself. I'm going to read several verses without much comment or explanation on each trying to get a broad look at all that's being said by the psalmist here and so be ready i would encourage you you've probably got three or four pages worth to to turn through as you go through psalm 119 i'm going to call out a verse here or there i'm going to try to put them in numerical order when i say verse 35 says this and verse 64 says that be ready to skim your eyes down and look as we go So this is a Hebrew acrostic poem that serves as a window into a prayer from the psalmist to God regarding the psalmist's acknowledgement of his need for God's revelation of himself to be the message that he listens to and lives by. And the first way that we see this is that he has a commitment to God's word. First of all, he has a desire to obey it. He's got this commitment to listen to and live by what God has said what God has revealed about himself. In verses 1 through 5, we see this phrase, I have set your rules before me. We see in verse 30, I will run in the way of your commandments. In verse 32, or wait a second, I'm sorry, I'm going in wrong order in my notes. I have set your rules before me is in verse 30. I will run in the way of your... See why it's intimidating and hard for preachers to do this? I will run in the way of your commandments is verse 32. I am a companion of those who keep your precepts is in verse 63. In verse 80, he says in this prayer, may my heart be blameless in your statutes. In verse 88, he says, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. In verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules. In 146, save me that I may observe your testimonies. He has a desire to obey what God has revealed. In 2019, I took a trip to Honduras with a a mentor of mine to help him serve a church that was doing a Bible conference in the city of San Pedro Sula in Honduras. And in my week that I was there, and a little bit of driving around that we did during that time, I noticed that the citizens of San Pedro Sula, where I was staying, viewed the traffic laws a little more like guidelines to do with what you pleased than laws to obey. Jumping lanes, cutting in front of people, and quite literally 
bumping into each other as you went down and tried to fit through a one lane, two cars into one lane or three cars into two lane and so on and so forth. And for me in my American sensibilities, it felt quite chaotic. But isn't that what so many of us do with what God has revealed with his word? Instead of obeying it, treating it more like guidelines. He has a desire to obey it. He also pursues it fully. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 33, I will keep it to the end. Verse 34, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. 57, I promise to keep your words. 93, I will never forget your precepts. 97, your law is my meditation all the day. 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. 112, I will perform your statutes forever until the end. And 148, I am awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. He's pursuing it fully. His whole heart is geared towards it. It's hard to imagine for us adding anything else to our already very full pursuits. Our schedules and busy lives pull us in different directions and overflow our calendars. But even amidst our own legitimate busyness, one thing must remain a constant pursuit, a persisting in a fully committed submission and living by God's word. Number three, he hates disobedient to it, disobedience to it. See that in verse 21, where he speaks of accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And in verse 29, where he says, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. 51, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. In 78, let the insolent be put to shame. 104, I hate every false way. 113, I hate the double-minded. 118, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes. 119, the next verse, all the wicked of the earth you discard. 126, it is time for the Lord to act because your law has been broken. 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 139, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. 155, salvation is far from the wicked for they do not seek your statutes. 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. And 163, I abhor and hate falsehood, but I love your law. Commitment to God's word. As the psalmist wants to listen to and live by what God has revealed to himself, he is committed to God's word. And so let's ask ourselves, does my life look like one that's committed to what God has revealed about himself? How fervent, dear friend, is your desire to obey God's word? Do you pursue God's word wholeheartedly, committing not to forget it, 
as wholeheartedly and as not forgetfully as you are your business success, your extracurricular activities that your children engage in, your personal pursuit of recreation. And could any of us say that we've ever truly been brokenhearted at the thought of people disobeying and dishonoring God? And I don't mean in a self-righteous, arrogant, prideful way. That's sin. But truly grieved by the lack of love for God's Word. The second is the psalmist's confidence in God's Word. First, confident in it to battle against sin. Verse 9, a young man keeps his way pure by guarding it according to your Word. Verse 11, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verses 59-60, through 60, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. In verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules that you have taught me. 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Verse 133, I, or excuse me, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Psalmist is confidently looking to what God has revealed, what is reality, to help him with his war against sin. And you know, of course, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaks of the Word of God as being the sword of the Spirit. It is a weapon with which to wage war against sin and its power. Scripture is our greatest weapon against sin, and we must use it. And so by way of application, friends, if you are not in the Word of God, and it seems as though your battle with sin has seen no advancement, don't act so surprised. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and we can be confident in it in our battle against sin. Secondly, standing on it with courage. In verse 31, the psalmist says, I cling to your testimonies. Let me not be put to shame. 46, I will speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. Verse 80, may my heart be blameless that I not be put to shame. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. The psalmist has confidence in God's Word. He depends on it, and his attitude towards it affirms the peace that belief in it brings. Third, trusting in God's Word when opposed. You see this opposition in verse 23. Even though princes or government officials plot against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Verse 42, I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. 51, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. In verse 86, he says, all your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. 87, the next verse, they have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In verses 150 and 151, 
It says, they draw near me who persecute me, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Amidst the ridicule, the threat, the opposition, and even attempted harm, the psalmist seeks to trust what God has revealed about what is true, what is real. And that puts everything else in its proper perspective. Their persecution comes from falsehood, he's saying, but I'm trusting in what's true about who you are, about what you're like, about what you've done for me, and about my relationship with you. Trusting in what God has revealed as he faces opposition. And then fourth, relying on it for wisdom. Verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. 24, Your testimonies are my counselors. 27, Make me understand the way of your precepts. 34, Give me understanding that I may keep your law. 73, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. 104, through your precepts I get understanding. 125, give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Verse 130, your words imparts understanding to the simple. Which you may know in the poetic books is the contrast to the wise, the simple and the wise. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding. And then 169, give me understanding according to your word. Friends, isn't it true that we often rely on our own wisdom in any given situation? But the truth, what's real, What God has revealed is that truest wisdom is found in Him. The wisdom of God, therefore, ought to inform the way we look at everything in the world around us. In other words, our worldview must be informed and driven by the wisdom of God in His Word. It must inform the decisions we make, the convictions we develop, the words we speak, the way we live. So that's the second, confidence in God's Word after a commitment to God's Word. Last, the psalmist is content with God's Word. The psalmist finds peace and hope and joy and meaning for his life in the message of what God has revealed about Himself in His Word. There's a long one here because this is a big deal to the psalmist, this list I'm about to read. Number one, satisfaction, excuse me, and delight. Verse 14, look at that. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. 24, your testimonies are my delight. 35, 
Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. 40. I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. 43. My hope is in your rules. 47 through 48. I find delight in your commandments, which I love. 62. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. 70. I delight in your law. We read this one, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 77. Your law is my delight. 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day or all day long. 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. 113. I love your law. 123. My eyes long for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. 143, your commandments are my delight. 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil or great treasure. 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. 171 and 172, my lips Pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. And 174, your law is my delight. The psalmist's delight in what God has revealed about himself is clear. He delights in it more than earthly riches, more than found treasure. In June of 2013, there was a man in Minnesota who bought a house with the intent of flipping it as a fixer-upper. Fixer-upper, excuse me. He bought the house uh, in, what did I say, 2013, and I think he bought the house in, for $10,000. It was a, in Minnesota, just this busted-up fixer-upper. And in some of the renovations that were being done, I believe it was the basement, but that doesn't really matter, pulling some of the walls out, he found in the insulation of those walls an Action Comics number one from 1938. And if you don't know anything about comics, that is perhaps the most important comic of all because it was the first Superman comic, i.e. the beginning of superhero comics. And if you know... Anything about what's going on in our culture around us, comics are now a really big deal in pop culture. And he sold that Superman comic for $175,000. That's quite a profit, isn't it? You think he was excited about finding that, as the psalmist puts it, great spoil in the walls of the house that he intended to flip? But oh, friends, how much greater is the vast treasure trove of the riches found in being 
plugged into reality, being filled with our gracious, wise, and loving Creator's revelation of Himself to us. And so, friends, I ask, can you say, like the psalmist, that your soul is consumed with longing for the Word of God? Is your life characterized by being delighted in what God has revealed? Are we satisfied with and by the truth that God has revealed? More than earthly success, more than personal advancement, more than our own earthly pleasures. You know, friends, if I was to tell you that I love Shakespeare, which is not necessarily, I mean, I don't dislike Shakespeare, but I wouldn't say I love Shakespeare. If I was to say that I love Shakespeare, but when you asked me to quote some of it to you, I couldn't, you might question whether or not I really love it. And I wonder how much of us can quote much, if any, at all from the book that we supposedly claim to love. Now, the final point here is probably the most important one because it's where we find the most frequent situation that the psalmist evidently was in. The situation that the psalmist appears to have been in was a situation of trials. And it is in those trials that the psalmist finds contentment with God's Word as he hopes in it for comfort. In verse 8, he says, Do not utterly forsake me. I will keep your statutes. In verse 28, he says, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. In verse 49, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. 50. This is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me life. Verse 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, this is a tough one for anyone suffering, but it's true. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Verses 75 through 76, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. According to your steadfast love, comfort me. According to your promise to your servant. 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life according to your word. 109, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. 117, hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. 153, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. 
The psalmist is praying to God and saying that he is trusting that the trials and troubles of his life are connected to the sovereign grace and goodness of God. And he's asking that the remembrance of the message of what God has revealed about himself, about the reality that we all live in, would comfort him in his trials. The reality that God is, that God is good and wise and powerful. In trials and in troubles, the psalmist says that his ultimate, final hope and comfort is found in what God has revealed. And so for all who are suffering, when your soul is melting away for sorrow, do you go to God's Word for strength and comfort? When you're dealing with the strain and stress of a sleepless night, have you ever thought about simply reading and rehearsing in your mind the Word of God? You know, if you read Psalm 119 with lenses that predispose you to simply look for words and phrases that have to do with the Bible, you might miss the fact that there is a ton of language in this psalm that has to do with suffering. Trials, pain, sorrow permeates this psalm. But I bet that most of us, at least those who have been Christians for any length of time, don't most quickly think of turning to Psalm 119 when we're in a season of trial. Maybe you think of Psalm 23, and you should, and you should read it, and you should meditate on it. Or 62, same thing. But Psalm 119, no, that's the huge one. Nah, I'm not going to go there. But in reality, Psalm 119 helps us in our sorrows because it reminds us of reality. It helps us, and I just like using this phrase, plug into or sync up with reality. To look at and listen to and live by what God has revealed to be true. What is unchanging about who He is and about what He's like and about what He's done for you and about what He's promised to do for you. We often tend to when suffering and sorrow hits, to look inward, to sulk, to worry, to brood, to try to control our situation and figure out a solution on our own. But the revelation of who God is and what He's like and what He's done and what He's doing and what He will do turns our gaze upward rather than inward. And friends, God's Word is not a magic pill it's not that when you crack open this book in your time of suffering, a flash of light's going to poof you back into where you need to be and every trouble and trial will be gone. But friends, as you look to God's Word, as you meditate on what He has revealed about what is real, and you listen and you look, you will find yourself, I promise you, you will find yourself re-synced or plugged in to what's true and real. It's kind of like when some bit of software or app needs to be synced because it's not working properly. 
Something's wrong with the app on your phone or with the software on your, on your laptop or whatever. And as a result, your user experience isn't reflecting what's real. I know that document is in Google Drive or whatever software you might be thinking of. I know it's really there, but it's not synced right now. That email really did come to me, but for some reason, the server isn't plugging in right. That's something like what meditating on, delighting in, and remembering God's word does for us. It reconnects us. It resyncs us with the realities of who he is and what he has revealed about himself and about us. And so Psalm 119 is a song like no other. The longest song ever is what I had thought about calling it at one point, but I decided that was a little too silly. I hope you get the sense that while we've looked at a fair bit of the data here, there's a lot more to be examined. There's a lot more to be enjoyed. That's why Spurgeon talked about it being a, a treasure trove to mine. And I'd like to recommend to you an article that Teresa recommended to me by Dave Powlison from years ago on Psalm 119. Brian had read it too. He said, oh yeah, you've got to read that. It's fabulous. It was tremendous. An article by David Powlison, who's now with the Lord, called Psalm 119 and Suffering. Or maybe it's the other way around. Suffering and Psalm 119. Pallison says in that article that reading Psalm 119 is kind of like walking around at a wedding and the different tables at the reception and uh, talking to the different people who seem to be seated a bit randomly and it can be a little bit hard to get to know at first, but that you get to know better and better the more you walk around and chat with each one of those 22 tables. And so one thing I'd like to call us to do is just that. Go back to Psalm 119 on your own. Go around to the different tables of the wedding feast that is Psalm 119. Chat with them, so to speak. Get to know them. Read them over and over and over again. And if you're intimidated by the length of Psalm 119, friends, it's only about as long as the book of Ruth or Philippians or James. It's not that long. We're just used to Psalms being a lot shorter. Don't be intimidated by the fact that this is the longest chapter of the Scriptures. Rather, think of it as the treasure room of Scrooge McDuck and just dive in like he does. It is indeed a treasure trove for us to enjoy. Take some different colored pens or highlighters or colored pencils or whatever and tie things back to each other. Find all the words that have to do with this and underline them in green and all the words that have to do with this and underline them in blue. Have fun with it, enjoy it, and dig deeply. And as, as I think I've already said, yes, what we've looked at today certainly includes some overlap. Some of the verses talk about a lot of the same stuff and we did not dig to the bottom of every single verse. But I'm going to let you do that on your own that we might be committed to it, confident in God's word, and content with it. God has revealed himself to us. He has spoken. He speaks to us with his word. But you know, most spectacularly of all, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. The psalmist wasn't making specific points about the second person of the Trinity, And now he would come to reveal God to the people of God most clearly. But that is exactly what happened. And the author of Hebrews says that. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God the Father sent his son to be God with us. 
to reveal and put on display exactly what God is like in an even clearer way than the prophecies and the Psalms and the history books of old ever did. And what was it that Jesus revealed about God? Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he put on display the fact that God is gracious, that God is just, that God is loving, that he is powerful and righteous and merciful and compassionate and wrathful and wise and all of these things that are true about who God is. And you know, if you're here today and you have never entered into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus and repented of your sin, I'm going to be standing right up here after the service and I would love to talk to you about that. The Word of God is the revelation of God to us. And He revealed Himself most clearly through Jesus. So as you do go back and read and study Psalm 119, remember that. Remember that the clearest way that God's revelation speaks to us is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Many years ago, or several years ago, I remember driving in my car listening to, I don't remember if it was ESPN Radio or WFAN, I was interested back when the Broncos were more interesting, to what the analysts thought the Broncos season that year was going to be like. And whoever it was at that moment, I remember so vividly, said with a lot of energy and a lot of passion at the beginning of the opening of the show, it's time to live and breathe Broncos. And fans of sports teams certainly do live and breathe their teams at times. And in its proper place, sports fandom can be done to the glory of God. I hope so, because I like sports. But what if we thought of ourselves as those who lived and breathed the Word of God? What would Redeemer Bible Church be like if her members were committed to and confident in and content with what God has revealed like the psalmist was? How much stronger would we as individuals and as families and as a church be in the face of trials? How much more courageous would each of us be to share the gospel? How many of our families would be more strong in the faith? How much more might we give of our money to the work of the ministry? And ultimately, how many more would come to Christ? Oh, may God use His Word to give us a love for it that we might live for Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to love your word. We want to follow your word. We want to be committed to the truths that you have revealed to us in your word. In the middle of the various trials that we face, in every situation that we are in, Lord, Help us to be committed to and confident in and content with what you have revealed. I pray in Jesus' name. Let's continue in prayer quietly in our own hearts for just a few moments.